Welcome to the FedSpeak podcast, brought to you by M&I Market News. I'm Jean Young, reporter in Washington. With me today are Randy Rabruggi and Saeed Zaman, two economists at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. They have new research out on how inflation is likely to evolve over the next couple of years, and the results are somewhat worrying. Last week, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester cited their paper in a speech, saying it presents a, quote, plausible case that inflation could end up being much more persistent than current projections, despite the actions the FOMC has taken, unquote. Of course, that refers to the Fed's very rapid rate hikes last year, which are still ongoing. So while she still expects inflation to improve materially this year, it does inform her view that the risks to inflation remain on the upside. Randy and Saeed, welcome to FedSpeak. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Ian. Tell me a little bit about your background and what you do at the Cleveland Fed. All right. So Saeed and I are both in the forecasting unit at the Cleveland Fed and have done you know, quite a bit of research in inflation as well. Said is very techy. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So the paper starts by noting that the FOMC's summary of economic projections in December it sees core PCE inflation falling back to 2.1% by 2025. And then it asks, how likely is that to happen? Can you walk me through your findings? Sure. What we're doing is building a conditional forecasting model, essentially. So it's going to answer the question, if unemployment evolves in such and such a way, what's the likely path for inflation? Or what does our model predict for the inflation path? And so what we did was we fed in the SEP's projection for unemployment into our forecasting model and asked, what's inflation likely to be at the end of 2025? And the number we get is 2.7% rather than 2.1%. We see inflation as being much more higher for longer, essentially. And I would just like to add here 2.7 by the end of 2025. But this the same model does indicate that by end of 2029, inflation will be at 2%. So it's not, according to this model, inflation is not stuck at this high level. It's just that it's going to take much longer for it to return to 2%. Right, 2029, that's that's very far away. What did you find to be the drivers of this higher inflation for longer? We think we're, we do a very good job in modeling the relationship of inflation to unemployment, which is key for answering this question. But the, the reason why unemployment stays so long is that once there's no recessionary force pushing down inflation, it, or, you know, you know, on the flip side, if you happen to be, if, if, you, if the economy happens to be overheating, you get upward force on inflation. But if you don't, if you have neither the recessionary force pushing down inflation or an overheating force pushing up inflation, inflation just takes a long, long, long time to get back to its um, steady state of two. It's just very, very persistent, much more persistent than most models, I think, recognize. And that's really the key here is it just without a force, it's just not going to move very fast. Mm-hmm. That's what, what uh, like for our, this particular model, the distinguishing feature from many other models out there, including the ones we uh, typically use to uh, generate forecasts here that we've been fed. This particular model is a nonlinear uh, in the sense it models the dynamics between inflation and unemployment in a nonlinear fashion. That is, it takes into account uh, the persistence of unemployment and also uh, asymmetries. 
as Randy will explain later, when I say symmetry, it means that when it's overheating, that's when you see Phillips curve being in action. When it's recessionary force is there, that's when Phillips curve is acting to basically restrain inflation. So that's how it's different compared to like linear models, which are most commonly used out there. And then there is also this time-varying Phillips curve uh, approaches. Uh, so this is more in line with a closer in spirit to time-varying models, uh, but it does it in a different way than how others do it. You also break down inflation into various components that Chair Powell and other Fed officials have been speaking about recently. You assume that goods inflation is falling, while the other components of inflation may not be. Can you talk about that? Sure. So one of the things that we noticed about our model is, you know, it's, it's showing high persistence in all the variables, but we also noticed that we weren't satisfied with leaving our hands off of the goods inflation forecast. So we decided what we were going to do was impose a very strong and rapid deceleration in goods prices. And, you know, that way we wouldn't be sort of open to the criticism. Well, you know, we think goods prices are going to come down faster than your model says. So um, that's one of the things we impose on the models, we're going to sort of condition on a path all the way through the end of 2023 of goods prices decelerating strongly. After that point, we let the model determine what goods price inflation would be from that point onwards. We do something similar for housing. We we impose the first quarter of housing inflation based on uh, now cash that's coming from a model that's relating PCE housing services inflation to past movements in CoreLogic's SFRI inflation variable, as well as its own lags. This is actually a long tradition in the forecasting literature where if you incorporate near-term information, you can improve the forecast of your models. I think that's answering the question you asked about what we're doing with good price inflation. In short, we're really pushing it down hard just to make sure that we're capturing you know, the relaxation of supply chains and you know, the movements we've actually seen in, good, in monthly goods price inflation. The advantage of this is that it allows us to separately model the dynamics of, let's say, goods inflation with unemployment components, similarly for uh, non-housing core services with unemployment and the third component housing. And by doing that, what we find is that with core goods, the relationship with unemployment labor markets is very weak. But with non-housing core services and housing, you do see some strong link with the uh, labor market developments like unemployment. And just to be clear, we have components of inflation, and then we have these components of unemployment. And there are these two components of unemployment. We decompose the overall unemployment into a medium uh, persistent component and also into like a low frequency component, like a very persistent. This is also the other distinguishing uh, feature of our model compared to many others out there in which they just take overall unemployment and then model it with like its impact on inflation. And here we are decomposing unemployment and then relating it separately with each of these three components of inflation. So you use as your input the SEP's assumption that unemployment will rise to 4.6% by later this year, I believe. How is that magnitude of the rise in unemployment, which is smaller than in typical recessions. How does that play into the model? Our model implicitly is interpreting this as a recession, just a very, very mild recession. And because 
it is a recession, it's then our model says there's going to be some recessionary downward force, particularly on housing component. It has a recessionary force that has some impact on the core services X housing, but it has a bigger influence on the housing component. And it has a modest influence on the core goods component. In short, we see this as being a very small recession, which provides very modest recessionary force. You can see in our model, it does actually push down the inflation path relative to a path, say, closer to the June SEP, which we would call a true soft landing, where there's basically no recessionary force. And there, the inflation paths then are shifted up accordingly because you don't get any of this downward force. In the paper, as you will note too, we do not characterize the December SEP as like recession. It's just that the model sees this rise in unemployment and it would infer it as something like how what happens uh, in a recession, right? It's still less than like a typical recession, the increase uh, in the unemployment. But just to be very clear in the paper, and we do not characterize as a, as a recession. That's why we just say December SCP. Okay. You do say in the paper that it, it is possible that we will need a deeper recession in order to see the inflation rate falling further. Can you explain that? Falling to 2% by the end of 2025, the horizon that matters, like, you know, the forecast horizon. Inflation will fall faster the deeper the recession is. So we also show a simulation where we put in kind of a mild recession, like the early 2000s recession, and we show that that does indeed shift the path down. And then we ask the question, okay, if we want to actually hit the December SEP path for inflation, what kind of recession would we need for that? And the answer we get to that question is you need one year of 7.4% unemployment, and that would deliver the SEP path. Later in the paper, then we do a very simple welfare analysis where we ask, if you just took a very, very, I don't know if you want to call it old-fashioned or traditional or rudimentary welfare approach where you, it's a quadratic loss function where deviations from unemployment from, I think it's 4% or 4.1%, you know, are penalized. And also deviations of inflation from 2% are penalized. Both of them are squared terms. And then we ask given different weights you put on unemployment deviations versus inflation deviations, which of these paths would be, quote, optimal from the point of view of a policymaker? If the policymaker had this particular loss function, what would be their favorite path or what would be the path they would choose? We don't find, of any of the um, parameter settings we use, we, we'd never find that this kind of more severe recession is the optimal path. And then depending on how much weight you put on deviations of inflation versus unemployment, you might choose a moderate recession like the 2001 recession, or you might choose the, the December path, SEP path, or you might choose the June SEP path if you're really concerned a lot about unemployment deviations and you're not worried about inflation becoming de-anchored by the resulting infl inflation path. But we see ourselves as just kind of providing policymakers with tools to make an informed decision about, okay, which of these paths, if this model is correct, which of these paths would be preferable for the economy? If you're weighting these deviations roughly equally, then this welfare analysis says the December SEP path would be the preferred one. Even though you have this higher path of inflation, it's because you're putting enough weight on the unemployment gap that you don't want it to be too high. Because then, you know, obviously 
the welfare analysis says that's bad, just like high inflation is bad. Right. So it is interesting to think about the contrast between your findings and what we are seeing in the real economy for the past few weeks with the stronger than expected labor market data, slightly stronger CPI data. It has led a lot of people to actually say perhaps we we could see a soft landing this time. And some analysts are even anticipating that the FOMC will revise down the unemployment rate forecast in the next SEP. Perhaps it won't rise as high as 4.6%. How would that play into your your findings? So what we would just say is, our model says, you give me an unemployment path, we'll tell you what the resulting inflation path is. So our model would say, if the unemployment path is stronger than the December SEP, then the inflation path will also be even higher for longer. That's what we would say. And so it is consistent with what you're seeing, tighter labor markets in the past few weeks, and then you are seeing also higher than expected inflation coming in as well, right? So it is consistent in that sense. Yeah, though we wouldn't want to read too much into one inflation reading, but at least this one happens to be consistent. <laughs> right. More broadly, you said that inflation is extremely persistent. Can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic? Sure. So one of the things that we found in our previous research is, this is just an interesting technical detail, but if you specify a inflation equation that includes lags up to lag the fifth quarterly lag of the inflation process, as opposed to specifying where you just force it to only have one lag. So, you know, those would be two alternative models. If you had this model with the fifth lag, if you took the sum of all those coefficients and placed that as the first, as the, in your other model, the, the single lag, that the model with five lags is going to end up being more persistent. It just has much longer kind of memory of high inflation in the past. We, we don't force that on the model, but we allow the model up to five lags of inflation, in all three of these components. And we find that that fifth lag is important for all of them. One of the things that just pops out of that thing naturally is that these that inflation ends up being more persistent than would be sort of typically estimated. And by the way, I just want to emphasize, we're not leaning on the model to say we want you to give us a high number for that. We're just letting the data estimate it as it wants to estimate it. Um, it's called using ordinary least squares. We're not using a Bayesian shrinkage. We're not pushing it towards a unit root, but we just find out that it ends up being very, very persistent, all three of these components. Because of that, you know, we end up with a very paths that, that are, remain higher for longer in, in the current situation. And by the way, there it also means that it will explain the, the experience of the economy from 2012 to 2019, when it just took forever for inflation, you know, over that time span, inflation moved like half a percentage point. That's years and years and years just to move a half percentage point. And so we're seeing, you know, if you think that episode has any you know, implication for the current environment, we should expect the same thing. Years and years and years for it to move a half a percentage point. Does your model say anything about the relationship between how high rates go and how high unemployment goes? Or are you just taking that as a given? That's a great question. Our model does not involve, does, we don't have a policy variable explicitly in our model. So yes, it's all implicitly, you know, we assume in the background, we're using the, the uh, correlations in the data to inform that, I guess. But in the background, something has moved the unemployment rate up. And our model doesn't say what it, you know, it would just say it's, quote, the unemployment shock moving it 
as opposed to what would be really driving it in the real world. What would you say would be an unexpected factor that would that would change your findings, such as a different relationship in the Phillips curve or something like that? Hmm. There can be many factors, you know, like you're right. There can be changing relationship within the Phillips curve. We have fitted onto hysterical data and you, and this can be like, you know, a very different uh, episode. Housing is another one, right? Yeah, the housing is kind of interesting because, you know, given the availability of software to set housing rents these days, who knows, you could see rents become more responsive than they have been in the past, in which case you might see the average rent facing a consumer, which is what is being measured by the consumer price index and the PCE, that might come down faster. Maybe landlords just become more responsive to current market conditions. And so when the leases come up for renewal, they might be more aggressive in repricing, whereas, say, 10 years ago, they would have been less aggressive. I did want to say, by the way, that these unexpected shock things is really important. And I think coming into the pandemic period in the post-pandemic, we saw three things that were just kind of unanticipated by most models. We saw supply chain problems. Not so many models had that. They didn't find those to be super important over the previous period, so they weren't included in the models. We had a shift in preferences, and we saw a huge stimulus. So all three things came in, and you know most models are going to miss it, and our model did pretty much miss that as well. Uh, I think we're in good company there. In terms of though the forecasting and now prowess of the model, I would say pre-COVID, our model is actually competitive with some very good benchmarks. We're doing a pretty decent job on pre-COVID data, so you should really take this seriously, you know, in the current environment. Bearing in mind, of course, that unforeseen shocks could move our forecasts and other people's forecasts either way. You may have noticed that as we provide the forecast, uh, especially for inflation, we are also providing these uncertainty bands. They are accounting for the fact there can be many different shocks, many different configuration of the shocks, and and the forecast can move up or down. So if you look at the uncertainty band, then there is a low odds of getting uh, something closer to the SCP 2.1 by the end of 2025. But our uncertainty bands include, say, 2.4. Right. But they also include, you know, 3.1. Well, it's really interesting research, and uh, thank you so much for talking to me about it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Jean. Uh, it was really nice discussing our research. Thanks for the opportunity.